Welcome to The Manifest, a podcast all about package management. My name's Andrew Nesbitt. And I'm Alex Pounds. And together, we're talking to folk from around the world of package management. We're exploring the technical details, hearing the stories and the histories of their projects, and learning about the communities around them too. Today, we're joined by Todd Gamblin, the creator of SPAC, a package manager for supercomputers. Todd, welcome to The Manifest. So SPAC is a package manager for supercomputers and high-performance computing environments. So why is package management different in those environments? And just what is a supercomputer or high-performance computing environment? So I I work at Lawrence Livermore National Lab, and we are primarily a science organization where people do research. And, And to drive most of that research, we're doing simulations. So this could be for climate It could be for other things like astrophysics. There are lots of things that you can simulate, but in general, it's very computationally intensive and you need a lot of hardware to do that. So if you want to think about what high-performance computing is like, it's like a cloud, except for it's not serving web applications or doing data-intensive batch jobs necessarily. It's doing a lot of number crunching and computing for physics problems. And so that equates to very large clusters. So our biggest machine at the moment is, I think, 1.5 million cores. And people compile very complex codes to run on those machines. So when you have a machine like this, you really want to get all the performance you can out of it. And we want to build the software to the hardware. People typically build from source in an HPC environment. And there are lots and lots of build options, and, and they may differ by platform. We care about lots of different architectures lots of different network fabrics and GPUs, things like that. I think that that's the main reason that that the software stack becomes so complicated. A lot of the codes span multiple languages. Most of our production codes are written in C++ here at Livermore, but Kalenda library is written in Fortran, and they may have front ends written in things like Python. And we frequently want to use vendor packages in addition to what we might install with the package manager. So using stuff that's already installed is, is pretty important to us. The reason you care about that is because if you don't use your vendor's network library or if you don't use some of the math libraries that they ship with the machine, you may not be getting the most out of the hardware. So we'll typically use the vendor BLOS implementation or or LAPAC. Those are two linear algebra libraries that go way back. And then we'll typically use the vendor's implementation of MPI, which is the message passing interface. And the processes running on these millions of cores will talk to each other using MPI. And it's optimized for networks like InfiniBand or OmniPath, which we run on our clusters. And I think that makes for a much more complicated compilation environment than what you might see in, say, Ruby, where everything is interpreted, or JavaScript or something like that. And with these clusters, are they running an operating system which most people might be familiar with already, like Windows, Linux, or Mac OS? Or are they running something completely custom? Like when we talk about vendor packages, are we talking about something from Apple, Microsoft, GNU, or some other provider? You're typically talking about something from vendors you may have heard of, like Cray or IBM, HP Enterprise, places like that. The OS is not unfamiliar to typical users. Most of these machines run Linux of some sort, but there are a lot of custom libraries and things that people build on them. So it's not the same OS as what you would see on, you know, with like a standard Ubuntu image. I think the other thing that's very common at the HPC centers is the OSs tend to be older. So we will run Red Hat Enterprise 6, and we've recently switched to 7. 
But the software stack that you get from the OS is maybe not as up to date as what you would get if you ran the latest bleeding edge Ubuntu image. Part of that is just because that's what the vendor ships with the machine. And part of that is because the driver support is much more robust in the older kernels. And so we will we'll tend to stick to those. And how do these clusters compare to some of the options available in the wider world for high-performance computers? Like you can rent spot instances off AWS reasonably cheaply, and you can get a lot of GPUs and a lot of CPU cores. Are they comparable now? I think the nodes are by and large comparable. So if you were to grab a C4X large instance on Amazon, it's probably pretty similar to what we would deploy on like our commodity clusters here. It's probably a Linux machine with Intel hardware, and yeah, you can get GPUs on those things. The place where the HPC centers really differentiate themselves, at least for now, with the cloud is on the network side. We're very sensitive to latency. So if you have physical space chopped up across processors, they will communicate with their neighbors very frequently to say, hey, this part of the world has been updated, and I want to tell you, my neighbor, about these changes. That may happen many, many times per second, and getting the latency as low as possible can really help the performance of the simulations. The other thing is that if you look at some of the bigger HPC centers, like here at Livermore or at Argonne or Oak Ridge, some of the other national laboratories, the the biggest ones, you will see things that don't look a lot like a cloud node. Our new machine that we're putting on the floor right now, it's a Power9 system. And so it has Power9 nodes with three NVIDIA GPUs per node, and and it's about 4,000 nodes of that. It's a different architecture from what you could get in most clouds, although I think IBM does offer some Power nodes. We're also deploying ARM nodes, and then there are big Cray machines with Xeon Phi processors on the back end. And they're like your standard Intel chips in the sense that they, they understand x86 instructions. But you know, one Xeon Phi might have 64 cores, and each one of those cores is like a little 386. And so you really need to use it in a different way than you would use, say, a C4 node with just Xeons. You need to have something that parallelizes well across all the available cores. And they can use AVX512 vector instructions and, and things like that that you don't see quite as often in the cloud. So how did you get into the high-performance computing environment? What was your path into working in that space? I think I've always been a bit of a systems person. So I graduated from undergrad and I, I was a web developer for a year. I decided I wanted to go back to grad school because I thought I really wanted to work on compilers, operating systems, kind of low-level stuff. And I ended up working for about a year on hardware. So I worked on asynchronous chips, which are clockless chips. They use them in cell phones sometimes. And I decided that hardware was maybe too low level. So I sort of bounced back up a little bit and got into high-performance computing through performance tools. In grad school, I worked on how to measure load imbalance across clusters. And that work led me to start working with, with Lawrence Livermore. And once I finished, I just, you know, it made sense to come out here and continue working with the, the people I was collaborating with. And so I've been out here since about 2008. What was the process of managing all of these pieces of software and preparing things for the supercomputers before you invented SPAC? So most of the HPC centers have teams of people who work on installing software for the big machines. That usually boils down to doing some sort of massive port every time a new machine is installed. In addition to that, the users tend to just install their own stuff. They'll build everything from source in their home directory. That's the way that people get the most performance out of the machine, is to build on the machine and let the build system see what the hardware looks like and optimize for it. So I think for the most part, people were building by hand. 
There have been other attempts before SPAC, so EasyBuild is actually you know, a predecessor to SPAC. That's from the University of Ghent in Belgium, and those guys were using it on the sysadmin side, but I'm not sure that it caught on quite as much with HPC developers as, as maybe SPAC has. Do the vendors provide any tools to help with package management and managing the OS images? So they do provide some software with the machines. They'll provide optimized libraries and things like that. I think for a very long time, HPC was sort of a, a universe where the, the vendors would install some software, the, the center managers would install software, and then most people at, at most HPC centers would just use that software. Or they were developers and they were savvy enough to build everything themselves. Now the software is getting much more complicated and people are starting to use more and more libraries and, and to build off of each other's stuff. And that's sort of driven this community over to the package management side. I mean, I think that's, that's a lot like other communities. But, you know, in general, the vendors provide an OS with the OS package manager. So our sysadmins will use RPM. And then the facility staff would just install into a directory on a shared file system. It's not like a cloud where you would get your own node and you would say, hey, I, I want an instance of a C4X large or something like that. You're building on some sort of login node that's shared among all the users. And maybe there's several of them and they get load balanced. The vendor compilers and things are installed there. And there are shared file systems that tend to be mounted both on the login nodes and then on the backend compute nodes as well. And so typically what you do is you just install into the shared file system or somewhere in your home directory, which is also shared between the front end and the compute nodes. And then you would submit a job through the, the batch scheduler. And then it runs eventually and it, and it gets at the software the way that you installed it. So working on an HPC system was like managing your own ecosystem in a home directory. So you actually have global shared packages installed for all of the users of that particular HPC? Yeah, we do. And the other thing that maybe predates proper package management on HPC systems is uh, environment modules. People had not automated the installation process on HPC systems until the last five years or so. With environment modules, you do the install yourself. It's manual. But you can type module avail to see what things are installed on the system. And you can say module load tool, and it will put that in your path. It'll add to your LD library path to CPath and some of these other environment variables so that when you do a build with, say, you know, make or something like that, that it takes those libraries into account. It's as though they're installed on the system. There's not a whole lot of consistency checking and things that you would expect from a package manager in the environment module systems. You have to kind of declare conflicts among the modules, and often it doesn't cover everything that you would expect from a package manager. It's not the full dependency hierarchy or assuming some things about the system there. And I guess one difference that might apply in this ecosystem is the way your code runs, in that it's going to be much more like a batch job. Normally when we're talking about developing and managing dependencies and pulling in all of the various bits and pieces that your app needs, that's software that we want to run continuously or be able to actually go back and rerun, right? Like if I'm working as a web developer, then I want to pull in all of my dependencies and be able to run my entire web app. If I'm working on iOS or Android, I want to be able to produce a build of my software and I want to make sure my colleagues can produce it. But I'm imagining with things like weather simulations and experiments and things like that, it's more of a case of you're going to write your code and then you're going to run the code and then you get a result and then you're kind of done. So does that have any implications for how code is written and packages are managed? I mean, that's a good question. You know, maybe it's not so much that scientists don't need reproducibility. 
because I think they do. That's currently kind of a big topic in the research community is whether or not people could actually reproduce the work that other people have done, given the complexity of the software that they're using. There's a pretty big push to make that possible now. It probably stems more from the fact that the users are mostly scientists, and they're not necessarily trained in DevOps or, or computer science things. They're people who write numerical codes that implement some physics, and they implement it the way that they learn to in grad school. And so for the most part, you know, it, at least at the larger HPC centers that have lots and lots of users doing kind of single-person projects, the user is the developer. They build their code. Um, it's probably experimental. And yeah, they do just want to run the experiment, get the results, and, and maybe write a paper about it. But I think for bigger organizations like Livermore, I think we've just typically relied on the shared file system being there to reproduce runs. So we could reproduce a particular simulation run. We might not be able to reproduce the build, but people have thought that, well, you don't have to rebuild that often. These days, the hardware is getting more diverse and the number of machines that people have to get up and running on and, and the number of cross-site collaborations that go on is, is increasing. And I think also just the fact that the cloud is out there and that people don't just run simulations on supercomputers anymore. They run them on their laptops. They run them in the cloud. They run them at other centers. It's kind of driven people to actually want to reproduce the, the full build and not just the artifact that works on this machine. So there's a lot of factors that contribute to this, but I wouldn't say that it's just because web developers have a special need to reproduce their their build. Yeah, I wasn't so much thinking about the expertise or that it's only a web developer thing, more about like generally programmers want their software to keep running. Like the app should keep running and users could have that app on a phone around for say five years. For a web app, you know, maybe a bit less than that because you're always releasing and updating it. But I guess I think of the lifespan of one of these batch jobs as being a lot shorter and just kind of, it doesn't have the same audience. It's more likely to be for the individuals. Yeah, and I think that's true. A lot of the reason that people have started automating everything in the cloud is just because the services need to be running all the time, right? People expect high availability. I don't think that was traditionally such a high expectation for simulation codes. But the job ends, and the job doesn't run for that long. They might run for weeks at the most. But the code lives for a long time. And package management and automating the build from source for the code and all the dependencies can really help the process of getting up and running on new machines. One of our codes that we tried to build at Los Alamos, at their supercomputing center, um, it used to take the team two weeks to get that thing up and running on new platforms. And when we actually used spec for that in kind of the early days, maybe four years ago, it took them you know, a day and a half to get all their dependencies ported and built just because of the, the automation and someone wasn't hacking in a terminal to try all the different build variants for the new machine. I wouldn't say it's perfect, but it's definitely an improvement and I think it's, it's helped a lot. Just to go back onto the reproducibility, when you mentioned hardware, the software that you're going to be installing potentially actually performs slightly differently based on different HPC setups, I guess. Does that have an impact on the reproducibility from the scientific side of things? It does. You know, the process of getting a code up and running on a new machine is not just building it, but also running the test suite. And so there's correctness issues and, you know, build errors and compiler errors and things. But once you get past that, people have to run test problems and make sure that their errors are within tolerance. And that may involve a lot more in-depth debugging, depending on how the hardware performs. The typical source of those kinds of errors, running on a GPU is different from running on a CPU. Anything parallel is going to do uh, floating point operations in different orders, depending on the machine or maybe even the run. 
and then some of the machines, like our our new one in our blue gene machines, historically have done some computation in the network fabric. So actually, the routers for like a distributed sum, if I'm going to sum up all the numbers on a large number of processors, there may be adders or, or floating point units that sit on the network somewhere, and they may behave slightly differently from what the processor would do. And then vectorization can affect those kinds of things. There's all sorts of reasons things may not behave the same on one machine versus another. So do you see scientists putting the details of the hardware that they ran the simulation when they publish their papers to allow someone to be able to kind of dig their way back out of a hole if they if they find themselves in some strange situation by knowing exactly the hardware and the software that was running in the previous result? Yeah, for HPC papers, people do tend to put hardware information in there. But I, I guess I would say that most of the codes are built with pretty rigorous test suites. And so I think the assumption is that you will fight with the hardware, get all the tests passing, and there are tolerances there. It's not a total disaster if your error is slightly larger, if it's within whatever they've decided is the accepted tolerance for their domain. So what was the tipping point where you went and decided that SPAC needed to be built? So I think probably two things. I had a graduate student and I was working with her on a project for a while. She was doing work on load balancing. And that involved a graph partitioner and and some other packages that had a whole lot of dependencies. And I had to keep building them repeatedly on our our big blue gene machine. That was a fairly painful process because she would update something or the, the OS would get updated and then the software wouldn't work anymore. And I would have to redo this whole thing. And her job was to do a PhD thesis. So frequently I would rebuild the software stack. So that sort of made me angry and I would complain about it. And then, you know, another one of my colleagues told me, you can't just make some package manager to automate all of this. And so that was sort of the last straw for me was being told that I couldn't. So I did. (laughs) And that was sort of the the tipping point here. So what are some of the specific challenges for package management in these HPC environments? The main one is that we care about performance. And it's important to build something that's optimized for the particular hardware that you're running on. And I think that's the biggest one from which everything else stems. It's important to use the MPI implementation that the vendor shipped, or at least a a fast one that you built yourself. It, It may require some tweaking and experimentation and trying out different compilers before you can really get your code to perform well on the hardware. You know, vectorization is a is a notorious one. It's very hard to get vectorized code to stay vectorized with changes. The compilers can be somewhat finicky about whether or not they think that a particular loop is vectorizable depending on how you change it. So things like that require people to experiment with different compilers, uh, different dependency libraries, different versions of things. And I think just the general experimental nature of the stack requires people to play around more with their builds than maybe they would in a production web environment where by and large, you know, the hardware is fast enough to run the web app. Whereas a small change in vectorization or threading or something on one of these machines can cause your simulation to take days instead of hours. And so people really care about that. So one of the main motivators for SPAC was to build something more flexible where people could very easily try out different versions and combinations of software and to build basically the same thing with three different MPI implementations, maybe four different compilers, things like that. And was it those reasons, like the performance requirements and other things, that made your colleague say that it couldn't be done, or did he have something else in mind? Yes, I I would say that the complexity of building on HPC systems is pretty well known, at least within the community. People tend to stay away from this stuff. People are very scared of build systems and getting down into the details of how things link together. 
you know, once they get a piece of software working, unless some major performance issue comes up, they kind of want to keep it the way that it is. So yeah, you know, that's why he said you couldn't do this because it's just very complicated. But I was a Mac ports user for a while and I had used Homebrew a bit. And so the fact that they could do it for Mac OS and, you know, granted they're assuming one particular OS and one type of hardware and that makes it easier. But, you know, the fact that they were able to do that sort of motivated me to, to try to do it for our HPC machines. So let's say I'm a developer and I have access to one of these HPC systems. How do I use SPAC to help me out? How am I going to include it in my project? How am I going to build it? What's SPAC going to do behind the scenes for me? Walk us through that process. Okay. I mean, the first thing you would do is just clone it from GitHub. It's at github.com slash SPAC slash SPAC. And if you clone the repository, it's pretty much ready to go out of the box. There's a shell script in there that you can source if you want completion and things like that. Or you can just run the SPAC program out of the bin directory of the repo. And then from there, you can say SPAC install package name, and it will go and build that package and all of its dependencies. Currently, I think SPAC looks a lot more like Homebrew or a system package manager than maybe um, maybe some of the other package managers that you guys have talked about on the show. It doesn't look like Bundler yet, although we're, we're working on adding that. And so I'm sort of hoping that eventually we would be able to have a SPAC file.yaml where you say what your dependencies are, and then you just say SPAC install for your project. And uh, it goes and builds all your dependencies, allows you to create a virtual environment, and um, spits out a, a lock file that says, you know, here's how I configured all of these packages. I think as far as, you know, experimenting with builds, one of the main distinctions with SPAC versus other package managers is that you can specify on the command line different options for your build. So you can say SPAC install, you know, package. You can say SPAC install package at version. You can say SPAC install package at version percent compiler name at compiler version. And then we have a pretty uh, robust parameter system. So packages can expose build options. And communities like Homebrew kind of discourage that because it's a CI nightmare to test all the packages. Um, In the SPAC world, the packages are more templated. We encourage people to put options on their package. So you'll see some of the libraries have, you know, two-dimensional, three-dimensional options for different physics simulations. They'll have options to be built either shared or static. They'll have options for things like how big are the floating point numbers that this simulation uses. And, you know, there's a lot of optional dependencies as well. Um, So different solver libraries for systems of equations may use or not use other solver libraries or other preconditioners and things. And that's typically configured at build time. I think the other major thing that we allow you to do is we have this virtual dependency system so that if you depend on something like MPI, which is an interface, but not an ABI-compatible interface, you can switch out different implementations of that library to compile your code with. There's two major implementations of MPI. There's OpenMPI and MPitch. Your code doesn't depend on either one specifically. You depend on the MPI interface, which is versioned. And those packages provide that interface at, at different versions. And so we'll match up the version of MPI that your package requires with your build. So is there a SPAC registry? Do you have like some database full of packages and compiler configurations that are commonly used? Or is SPAC completely registryless? It's registryless in the sense that there's no server that says, hey, here's the list of SPAC packages. And it's not distributed in the way that like NPM is. SPAC has this ability to have package repositories. And it has a built-in package repository that comes with it. And that just sits 
in the main SPAC repository. And there's like 2,600 recipes in there. Sites can have their own package repositories and they can keep private packages there if they want to. But at the moment, yeah, updating your package requires a, um, a pull request into SPAC or you make your own repo and, and develop those packages outside the mainline. So it looks a lot like homebrew in that sense. I think a repo is a lot like a tap and the package recipes look a lot like homebrew formulae. So you don't have the code itself hosted. It's more like a script to define here's where you find the source code and here's all of the different options that can be used to build it. Here's the, the tool that should be used to build that once you've knitted everything together. Yeah, and, and I think that's another interesting thing about SPAC is that even in Homebrew, the package files for different versions are mostly separate. Whereas with SPAC, there's one file per package, but it's templated. It's a package.py file, and it implements a class that has the same name as the package. And it says, hey, here's the URL. This is where you can find versions of this package. Um, it may have several of those so that you can find lots of different versions. Um, we'll even extrapolate URLs to try to find new versions of packages. So you can say SPAC checksum package name, and it'll go out and look for new versions and download tarballs and, and generate checksums for you so that you can put more of them in the package file. And then you can add variants to the packages. They were originally just true-false options, but those have grown. And so we can have multi-valued or string-valued or number-valued variants on the packages. And all of that goes into the build provenance when we build something. So it's, it's sort of like you're instantiating that build, but with a bunch of different parameters. And SPAC sort of makes sure that within one build, when we resolve dependencies, that that stuff is consistent based on how the packages depend on each other. With the build options, you don't have to just depend on another package at a particular version. You can depend on it with a particular option. So you can say, hey, I depend on Boost, but I need the IO stream library to be built. Or you can say, you know, I depend on this solver library with, with these options enabled. Or you can say, I depend on something built with a particular compiler, things like that. When you say spec install name, and we, we call that a spec for the package, you're really giving an abstract description of the package and we go and sort of fill in all the blanks to make it into a concrete build for a particular platform. Cool. So you, you could actually end up with one package installed and kind of configured in a very different way, depending on which package declared that as a dependency and how it declared it, which options it cared about. Yeah, that's right. And, and we let you have all the different versions built at once. So suppose I'm going to install HDF5, which is an I.O. library for scientific data. It can do parallel I.O. It depends on MPI. I might build it with you know, three different MPI versions. I might build it with OpenMPI, MPitch, MVAPitch. Those all live in separate directories, and they are RPathed to find their dependencies. You know, for people who aren't familiar with RPath versus LD library path versus other ways of finding libraries, Basically, if you're building a compiled library, it has to have a way to find its dependencies. And so one way is to use the ld.soconf in, in Etsy. That's the system library search path. The other way that a lot of people are probably familiar with is by setting ld library path, which I argue is, is bad. We can talk about that later. And then the other way is by setting rpaths. rpaths are embedded in the actual binary. So if we build a library in SPAC, we actually put rpaths into the libraries that we build so that they know where to find their dependencies when they run. This is targeted at one of the major sources of frustration for people who try to experiment with lots of different versions of things. If they build a code with one version of MPI and then they run it, but they happen to have another version of MPI in their LD library path, 
things can explode because they're not ABI compatible. The the function calls in in one binary are not compatible with the ones the library they have loaded expects. With SPAC, we figured that you knew what you were doing, or the package manager knew what it was doing when it built the library, and that at runtime, you probably don't want to think about, hey, what compiler did I build that with? What MPI did I use? What version of what dependency did I use? You just want to run. And so we build the binary so that they'll know uh, where all that stuff is, and you don't have to necessarily set up environment variables to make it all work. So I guess that avoids SPAC becoming not just the package manager, but the build tool and the uh, environment orchestration, as you see in a number of other package managers, where things like cargo become the whole Rust tool chain stems from the configuration of the commands that run from that, or with bundler, where you say bundle exec to actually run the program because it knows about everything at runtime to kind of define the environment. You're basically saying, SPAC is going to always produce a binary that will do the right thing. So then it can kind of get out of the way and doesn't need to be involved once it's finished building everything. Yeah, that's the idea. And and you still need some environment settings for things like Python or languages that depend strongly on environment variables. So we, we are adding this virtual environment capability. But if you build just a regular compiled binary with SPAC, it should just work if you run it. We don't want to require any sort of environment management system. We do generate environment modules, like I was mentioning before, because SPAC's used not only by developers in their home directory to build things, but also by facility staff to deploy large amounts of software. And modules is kind of the interface that people are used to. So we'll generate module files for all the different builds so that users can just module load their favorite package. So when did you release SPAC and what has the adoption been like? So I guess we released it as open source in, I'd say, 2014. And adoption was... Fairly slow uh, at first. Uh, we wrote a paper about SPAC and we we presented it at the supercomputing conference in 2015. And I think that's when the adoption really started taking off. And so we started getting contributors. We started getting lots of pull requests for different builds of packages. And we even started getting pull requests for core features. So we've had major contributions from folks at like EPFL in Switzerland and from Fermilab. They contributed binary packaging to SPAC. It's been quite good. We went from, I think, 170 packages in 2015 to over 2,600 now. So it's, it's been pretty rapid. And we've had contributors really start to step up and merge pull requests and work on managing the backlog of issues that we've had. And that's enabled us to focus on core features as well. Sorry, I went down a rabbit hole of looking at the uh, contributors on the project there. It seems like there's quite a good number of people are actively involved in the project. Yeah, we merged 30 to 50 pull requests a week, which is really good considering that it's a niche area. You know, HPC doesn't have quite the community that JavaScript does. And, and so I'm pretty impressed that we've been able to get as many contributors as we have. I think we're up to something like 260 now, people who have committed something or another to this back repository, packages or otherwise. And the default packages are defined in the same repository as the actual application code for the package manager itself. Yeah, that's right. We could move that out to a separate repository, kind of like Homebrew has recently. The The main reason it's in there right now is because we're not completely stable on the package API. And so we want to keep the core packages updated with the package manager, at least until we go 1.0, um, at which point I think we'd have to have some more stability than that. Yeah, at the moment, I guess you have a fairly nice reproducibility and backwards compatibility that just comes from 
everything being in the Git repo, right? You can just roll back to a previous commit to get exactly what you had done before. And it doesn't matter if the, uh, the code has changed in master because the packages worked at the time that they were committed, I guess. Yeah, that's true. And currently our concretizer, which is what we call dependency resolution in SPAC, it only looks at the package descriptions. So it's kind of like um, Yarn in that sense. It's, I guess, what you might call a deterministic algorithm. You'll get the same thing for the same spec as, as long as you're using the same version of spec. We have had people complain about that, and there's been debates for how we could modify the dependency resolver to more aggressively reuse what people have already installed on their systems, which sort of gets into this NPM versus Yarn kind of debate about what should you use for production deployment, what should you use to get something installed quickly on your local machine, and and how reproducible are those algorithms for for doing dependency resolutions. So we're going to offer both. We'll we'll continue to offer this version where, you know, if you went back to an older commit of SPAC, you could say, concretize without looking at anything that's installed so that I know that I'm getting the same thing as another person. But we'd also like to do reproducibility through the lock file model where basically we say, okay, we concretize this package. Here's the concrete spec for it. Uh, you could go and you know, load that on another version of spec and rebuild the same thing as long as you're on the same machine. Oh, I can imagine that lock file having some really interesting issues around that, especially when the compiler is defined by the parent dependency of something. That's a fairly infrequent case. I think people tend to build with relatively consistent compiler stacks. I think the trickier thing is like, suppose that the guy who tries to reproduce it doesn't have the same compiler as the person who tried to install it. That's become kind of an issue for newer versions of C++ and compiler capabilities like OpenMP, where the support level for OpenMP depends on the version of the compiler, and the support level for C++ also depends on the version of the compiler. That gets into um, what kind of runtime libraries do you have, how might you get them. And so I think we'll have to do some pretty interesting stuff there where I'd like it to be so that if you take a lock file that someone built on another machine, like even another architecture like Power, and you try to build it on, say, an ARM system, that we could look at the package descriptions and and try to re-resolve the dependencies in the build configuration to be as close as possible to the original, but still legal and not violating any constraints declared by the packages. Is there any kind of standard conventions for the way that tests are run on the kind of programs that would be installed or used spec? Not really. You know, a lot of HPC packages will come with their own fairly extensive test suites, and they can get to be pretty gigantic. So for example, like Petsy, which is a solver library, builds multiple gigabytes in, of test cases outside the actual installation directory. So their tests are actually bigger than their install. I think one of the problems in HPC is that submitting jobs to the compute nodes is fairly inconsistent from site to site. And so you know, writing a script that could automate that across the different sites can be difficult because you have to detect what's the resource manager being used, how do I submit a job, how do I do it consistently so that I'm running n processes per node or so that I'm running threaded versus with multiple processes, things like that. There's lots of ways to run a code. I think for the most part, the people who are developing stuff that runs at scale, they'll have some kind of test setup that works on their favorite machines, maybe at several sites. But as far as reproducing that, I think that's another challenge. It's building a system maybe on top of SPAC that could, that could reproduce all the different test cases with predictable builds underneath. So I think there's both a build reproducibility problem and then a, a test running reproducibility problem that, that we have to face. 
do the configuration files include any of that details? Like, I know they'll include things like, we built this with this package and these options, but does it say, and then we ran it on this particular job system? No, because SPAC just builds, um, and then running is sort of, it's a process. (laughs) Most of these systems have some kind of batch scheduler that's sort of managing the hardware. So... I mean, we don't really store the provenance for what the resource manager was on the system. And you have to run with whatever the facility provides because that's how you get permission to access the nodes. I'd like to figure that out. I think you would need something that's kind of portable for that. And these things tend to be tied to the system. Like Slurm defines Affinity differently on the command line than, say, PBS or LFS or some of the other resource management systems. The projects tend to have run scripts in their directory for maybe some example test codes. And there may be a bunch of them, depending on which facilities they want to show you how to run on. So they'll say, here's here's one for Mira at Argonne. Here's one for you know Sequoia at Livermore. Here's one for Titan at Oak Ridge. And here's one for a generic Linux cluster. And then you sort of have to tweak those to, to actually run the thing. It is not as automated as like Kubernetes or some sort of AWS API at the moment. And I guess the upside of that is that you can work on developing SPAC without having access to an HPC environment. As long as you can build your software locally, like you could on pretty much any Linux machine or Mac OS or probably Windows as well, if you have the right tool chains installed. And then the actual task running, like that's kind of outside of SPAC's purview. So you can work on the package management without needing access to that environment. Yeah, that's true. I would say that a lot of the development gets done on people's laptops, and then there's an effort to sort of port that to the big machines. You know, Maybe when they need to do a big run, or maybe frequently, but people do use their laptops for a tighter development loop. We would like SPAC to work in all of those places so that people can use the same tooling. And Docker doesn't get used in HPC environments, I guess, because you, you just pave over all of the uniqueness of the machines that you are installing it onto. That's a really big topic in HPC right now, how to use containers. So I would say that Docker doesn't get used necessarily on the HPC machines, but there are a lot of people who want to run services and things in front of their HPC applications. So like there are science workflows where people want to have some kind of little server sitting there managing ensembles of jobs, and maybe users can log into that, play around with what jobs are running right now, um, how much of this ensemble is done, stuff like that. Um, And then those would actually launch jobs through the batch system. For those environments, people are looking at using Docker. On the actual compute nodes, it's kind of the Wild West out there at the moment. There's something called Singularity that's getting a lot of traction. And it's nice because it's multi-tenant safe. So most of the HPC machines are effectively shared. We use OS security. One user can't access another user's information, and you can't be root on the machines. Singularity is nice in that the the container only ever runs as your user, whereas Docker, if you have access to the Docker command, you're essentially giving your users root. And so there's Singularity and other container runtimes that people are kind of exploring. The big issue there is, how do I get performance? If I use an Ubuntu image, and the binaries for Ubuntu are built generic for generic x86, what am I leaving on the floor as far as actually utilizing the hardware? Do those security issues come up? Like, do we have the problem of one user trying to get access to another user's data? You certainly do. At the very least, the facilities care about it. I suspect there are users out there who would very much like to have access to other users' data because on some of the HPC centers, people are running export-controlled stuff. 
or you know otherwise sensitive software. We have a classified network here at Lawrence Livermore that people run on and need to know is a big deal there. So yeah, people are justifiably paranoid about that stuff. Do you ever have anyone doing any crypto mining on these massive machines? I think people have been fired for that. Not here, but at other labs, of course. You're not supposed to use government resources for that. For crypto stuff, though, it's not going to be worth it, at least for the center, to mine bitcoins on the machine. The folks who are doing the best at that are working with custom ASICs and really low power stuff. Whereas, you know, if you paid for this whole supercomputer and, and tried to mine bitcoins, I don't think it would actually pay for the supercomputer. But yeah, I guess if you're <laughs> if you're a user on the machine and you didn't have to pay for the supercomputer, then yeah, you could get a lot out of it, which is why they don't they don't want people doing that. Years ago, I worked for Sun Microsystems as an intern. And one of my colleagues was working in the department where they had access to like all of the various hardware because they would spin up customer environments and help them troubleshoot. And one of the big machines, I think it was called something like a Sunfire E25K. And it was like a full height server rack just stuffed full of nodes. And it wasn't quite at the same scale as you're operating at, but it was a pretty tasty machine. And I remember he told me once that he tried running SETI at home on it, just mostly to see what would happen. You know, I think there might have been like a little slim facade of like, well, I just wanted to exercise all the CPUs, make sure it worked okay at maximum power draw. And he said that the room got noticeably louder as all the fans spun up and the temperature got noticeably warmer. And somebody pretty quickly came in and told him to knock that off and don't do that again. Yeah, our biggest machine when we'll run the benchmark on it. It's noticeable to the power company that we've done that. I mean, the machine has a peak power of nine megawatts and idle is something much lower, maybe three or four. And so when you run this benchmark that uses 80% of the CPU, the power company notices. So we have to tell them when we're going to do that. You're actually going to dim the lights in the room. You're going to dim the lights in the neighborhood at like nine megawatts, right? That's a chunky bit of power. Do you have any other fun war stories or anecdotes that you could share like from the HPC environment? The biggest war story that I'm engaged with at the moment is trying to get TensorFlow packaged in SPAC because a lot of people want to do machine learning on these machines. One of the issues there is that Bazel is kind of designed specifically for what Google does, which is they check out of the monorepo, uh, they control the whole project. And I think you know packaging things that are built with Bazel is very hard. The build system assumes that the compiler is user bin GCC. And so if you want to use another compiler, we have to patch it. And then the other nasty thing that they tend to do in there is they assume that they own all their dependencies. Rather than building the dependencies and then installing them and using the installed version, they'll build the dependencies inside their tree. They'll copy development headers and internal headers and object files into the install directory for TensorFlow. And then they will build the rest on top of that. And so it, it just sort of violates all the boundaries that you would expect within a package manager between packages. So we're trying to work around stuff like that. And, and we're trying to work with uh, the Google folks to make it so that Bazel can use external packages so that it might be packageable by not only just SPAC, but also the Debians and the CentOSes of the world. But it's pretty nasty. Another thing that comes to mind is building things with Bloss and LawPack and some of the lower level numerical libraries that have been around for a really long time. I think that's one of the things that's really hung people up in the HPC environment for getting things installed because like MPI, and we talked about how MPI is a source interface, but the implementations are not necessarily binary compatible. LawPack and BLOSS are both source interfaces to some low-level linear algebra routines. 
But from a build system perspective, they look very different because every implementation of them, you know, there are no headers necessarily. There are Fortran symbols <laughs> that you use to link these things. And the different implementations that the vendors provide may have, you know, different library names in order to support the same interface. And a lot of the, the solver libraries and a lot of the HPC software depends on Bloss and Lapak. If you want to be able to experiment with different implementations, the build system has to be able to abstract not only the name of the package that you depend on, but also the symbols from the libraries that it includes and you know what they happen to be called in that particular implementation. And so that can get to be really nasty. So we actually put an interface into SPAC for this so that you can call some standard methods on your virtual dependencies. If you're a client code, you can say, hey, Bloss implementation, whatever you are, give me the libraries that I need to link with you. And it works kind of like package config, but I think the interesting thing is that we made it so that you know one package may provide both BLOSS and LAPAC, or they may come from two entirely separate packages, or maybe depending on the configuration, one may provide both, or one may provide one, and another may provide the other. And so we've sort of abstracted that with this virtual dependency layer and made it so that the same code in a client package can link against those libraries without all the headaches that the people have faced in the past. It doesn't look anything like the nicely factored Semver interfaces that people are shipping in the JavaScript in Go worlds these days. There was a brilliant talk about that kind of topic at FOSDEM titled How to Make Package Managers Cry, where there was a lot of jabs at TensorFlow and how painful it was to install by Kenneth Host from the... Um, easy build project where i think he'd run into many of the same problems yeah he's he's very angry about that <laughs> he's I, I was at the talk i i talked to kenneth a lot because we're both doing hpc build tools and yeah i thought that was a great talk do you two collaborate a lot on directions do you have any talks about interoperability We've talked about interoperability a bit originally we talked a lot about how might we merge these things how might they come together the easy build guys their packaging philosophy is a little different in that they fix versions. And so their packages are really, I built this thing with these versions of its dependencies. They don't do dependency resolution or version ranges, whereas spec does. And so that's sort of a fundamental architectural difference between the two. We both allow swapping of compilers and things like that. But I would say that they're sort of more geared towards facility deployment. We're trying to support that, but also function more like some of the package managers that people love from other ecosystems, like from Rust or, or Ruby or JavaScript. I'd say we talk a lot and we trade jabs at each other, but we don't necessarily share any, uh, any code. If there was one feature from another package manager that you could steal and add to SPAC, what would that be? So I think the one that I like the most lately that I've seen is the dependency resolution stuff that the pub folks are doing. It's Natalie Weizenbaum, right? With PubGrub. They recently added this really cool tweak to the solver in their dependency resolver where they track all the reasons that conflicts have arisen and they give really good error messages to users. I would like to steal something like that. We're currently working on rebuilding the dependency resolver in spec to handle a lot of things like cross compiles and different compilers. We'd have to add support for all of that and handle error messages with respect to more than just packages and versions. But yeah, I would like to steal that. And when we first started talking about this computing environment, 
we talked about some of the tools which were made available by the original vendors. Have you had any contact from people working for the vendors? Have they suggested maybe even including it in the standard distribution? So we have had talks with vendors about that kind of thing. We haven't gotten vendors to say, hey, we'll use SPAC as the package manager on our hardware, although we're we're sort of pushing to try to get some of them to do that. But we have gotten vendors to contribute packages. So in our latest procurement of this big Power9 system, Sierra, that we're deploying right now, IBM has done a lot of SPAC packaging for the math library so that they'll work with the Excel compilers that ship with the IBM systems. So we're starting to get vendor buy-in. ARM also has done a lot of packaging with SPAC, and, and a lot of the labs have done SPAC packaging for ARM clusters as they try to get their software stacks up and running on ARM systems, which are looking pretty interesting for HPC. So you say some of them have contributed code. Have any of them contributed money? Is that even possible in this world? Because normally when we talk about supporting open source, it's from companies which use it. But in the academia slash governmental world, maybe it's not even feasible for some big player like IBM or HP to say, we want to sponsor the development of this. At least at Livermore and probably at most of the HPC sites, people are really the scarce resource. So, you know, even if someone were to pay us more money to work on SPAC, we wouldn't necessarily be able to scratch up the developers here to work on it. I think the the fact that they've started contributing, you know, time from their own engineers and that they've gotten their own people familiar with SPAC and, you know, savvy with with packaging software for these platforms, I think that's more valuable than maybe the money that they would contribute. You know, at the same time, we're working on increasing funding for SPAC, both here at Livermore, but also under the U.S. Exascale project, which is a big source of funding in the Department of Energy. As far as increasing development effort or as far as contributing, I, I would much rather have time than money at this point. So you said before that some of the new features in SPAC include things like the ability to package binaries. What else is coming down the pipe? What are the new features that you are working on or planning to work on real soon now? Okay, so the main things that we're working on right now are infrastructure for doing builds of the binaries. So we'd really like to have SPAC packages for some of the more common OSs just built and and ready to install. Along with that, we're working on better supporting compiler runtimes for the binaries. So if you if you build with a newer version of C++ than, say, your OS supports, then we need to RPath in the libstandard C++ from your compiler. So we're adding in the ability to do relocations for things like that and to actually install the runtime if you need it. Beyond just the build automation, we're looking at adding environments so that we can do this kind of manifest lock file model that's getting to be so popular. And we're working on rebuilding the uh, dependency resolver or the concretizer, as we like to call it, in SPAC. So those are the three immediate term things. We've had some really good contributions from the external community. So I think one of the more interesting ones was from Fermilab. They contributed the ability to take multiple instances of SPAC and chain them together. So that if you had a bunch of packages installed by the system administrators, as, as frequently you do on the HPC machines, or by maybe an application team, you could point your SPAC in your home directory at that and reuse the installed packages from there. And so that's sort of bundled up with the new concretizer because we need to make it so that it can more aggressively reuse already installed things. So that's kind of the near term. I think the longer term things that I would really like to do would be to better model compiler dependencies. So I'd like to have packages able to say, 
I require C plus plus seventeen, and then to be able to swap compilers in and out based on what features of C plus plus they actually support. Um, and then if I really wanted to go far out, I think I would want to build everything down through libc and make it so that you could actually swap out libc implementations from within spac so that you could build the same software but with glibc or muscle or eglibc or something like that we'd have to rework the linker model a little bit and also add to the dependency model to do that but i don't think it's infeasible so i think the last thing that we have to talk about is the name of spac itself given that both andrew and i are british and the word SPAC is an ableist slur in the UK. Has this come up? How has this impacted the project? It's come up a few times. We have British collaborators, and so we have folks at universities in the UK and also at AWE who are using SPAC. And, you know, they've mentioned it, but they haven't actually asked us to rename the tool. I think some of them may call it by a different name internally. So I think at AWE they call it SPAC or SoftPAC. But aside from that, we haven't had any really strong pushback on the name. I guess on our side, the name comes from, it's just short for Supercomputing Package Manager, and it was Googleable. So that was why we chose it. It's somewhat regrettable that, it, that it's actually a, a slur in the UK. And I'm presuming the project does have a code of conduct. So hopefully that kind of balances things out the other way to help make it a more inclusive environment. We do. And, and I would say that, I mean, we haven't had that many issues where people have just been rude or, or demeaning towards people on GitHub, thankfully. So I'm, I'm hoping that we don't. So we put the code of conduct in to sort of head that off. But, you know, fingers crossed. If someone wanted to try out some of these HPC things, say, on their laptop, is there ways that they could simulate or experiment with that without having access to a real HPC environment? You can install most things from SPAC on a Linux desktop or on a, a Mac laptop. Uh, we don't currently have Windows support, but you know we, we'd like to do that at some point as well. You don't need a vendor MPI. SPAC will build you an MPI if you don't have one. Um, so you know all the different parallel codes you can just build on your laptop. And most of the compilers that we would use on an HPC node, you, know, you can get some equivalent of that for uh, your Mac. So OpenMP is supported in GCC on a Mac. So you can, you can build that. You can even install Intel compilers on a Mac or, you know, on a Linux desktop and play around with them. So I don't think there's anything that really prevents you from building or running the codes that you could build with SPAC. You just won't be able to run them on as many processors. Do people actually run Windows HPC setups? They have in the past. And I think for the most part, that's people's desktop environment. And so they're doing their development with an HPC system in mind on a Windows desktop. In some cases, we have some customers, maybe in the, in the DoD and other places, who run Windows on their desktops, and they want to be able to run simulations there without the HPC resources, but you know, small-scale stuff. So if people wanted to get involved with the development of SPAC and SPAC packages, where can they go to find that? Um, just go to github.com slash spec, and we have a contributor guide. Um, you'll find a link to our uh, documentation on read the docs. And there's a whole um, page on, on how to contribute to spec, how to contribute your first pull request. We try to be pretty receptive, although we do have a bit of a backlog. But uh, we're, we're open to PRs, and we'd love to have more contributors. And if people want to find out more about you and what you do, where can they find out about that? If you Google Todd Gamblin, I think that my profile at Livermore will come up. 
So that's one thing. The other thing you could do is uh, you could. I, I had a changelog podcast um, a while ago just about Moore's Law and HPC in general. That's a good one to look at if you're interested in this area in general and, and kind of the stuff that I do. Great. We'll get links to those in the show notes as well. Well, thank you so much for coming on and telling us all about SPAC and package management and also teaching both Andrew and I about the HPC environments. I feel like you've had to go over a lot of the basic ground as we're both web developers and trying to, we've both been trying to map our prior experience onto this world and trying to like figure out exactly how it works and what it looks like and what the differences are. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks. And we'll be back with another episode soon. 